Our Father in Heaven, we want to count it a privilege to be where You desire to be. And that is here in this room tonight, in our midst tonight. Is Your Holy Spirit that I ask for particularly? Because in many ways, I am just like all the other people in the room. Someone that I believe sincerely wants to be closer to you, wants the success and the privileges and blessings that come through having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Lord, we won't get that from listening to me speak tonight, but we will get that from you speaking to each one of us, including myself, through the presence and power of the Holy Ghost. It is that, that presence, that gift, that I ask you to bless us with here. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Out but not in. Going but not coming. The Israelites, uh, I'm going to play on the theme of the conference, which is, you remember? Following how much? Fully. The story of Joshua and Caleb, which that text of Scripture is about, starts not with Joshua or Caleb, but actually starts with the Israelites in Egypt. God, you remember, had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. God told Abraham that he would bless him with a land, what we know as the promised land, the land of the Canaanites or the land of Israel. Abraham didn't get to personally see that materialized. And God told him that his people would spend 400 years captives in the land of Egypt. The Israelites became slaves after Joseph died and Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh came that knew not Joseph. The Bible tells us that the Israelites were enslaved. As the Old Testament prophesies, 400 years they were in bondage to the Egyptians. And the only hope they had of freedom was a promise. A promise given to Abraham that one day they would inherit a land of their own. You know, you and I have promises we claim in the Scripture. But a promise not realized, a promise not materialized, is still nothing but something that happens in the future. And for many of us, means nothing if it's not happening now. You know God's promises are not just to be future activities, future events, but those promises are given to be fulfilled in you, through you, in us, through us now. Do you believe that? A promise does no good if a promise isn't realized, materialized, made reality. The Israelites were in Egypt. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, verses 3, uh, excuse me. Yep, okay, right spot. I'm looking at all my computer and Microsoft Word, and I'm looking at the screen. Make sure I didn't hit the button too many times. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. This is at the burning bush. I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out 
of that land into or unto a good land and a large. A land, the Bible says, that is flowing with what? Milk and honey. Unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The land of Egypt is a symbol. And the land of milk and honey is a symbol. It was reality for them, but it is a symbol for us. Ellen White writes the following words, the Passover was to be both commemorative and what? Typical. Not only pointing back to the deliverance out of Egypt, but forward to the greater deliverance which Christ was to accomplish in freeing His people from the bondage of sin. You see, what I'm saying to you is that their story is our story. What happened to them, unfortunately, often happens to us. And in the positive, what happened to them can be what happens to us. This story is both commemorative of the past and typical of the future. Not only commemorating deliverance from Egyptian bondage, but from the greater, I would encourage you, bondage of sin. Of course, in the reverse, the land of Egypt, if it's a symbol, the promised land is also a symbol. It is a land the Bible describes as a land flowing, we said it earlier, with milk and honey. You ever thought about those words and what those words mean? This is a, what kind of conference is this? This is an agricultural conference. This is a gardening conference. This is a farming conference. This is a ranching conference. It's all the same words meaning the same thing, ranching, farming, gardening, it's all the same activity, maybe different scales. You're a big farmer. you got acres and acres and acres. You're doing the same activity on a, on a larger scale that you and I would do in our backyard. Whether you have 1,000 square feet or 100 square feet or 100,000 acres, it is the same activity carried out on a larger scale. And that right there is agricultural language. Because see, you get milk from what? And you get honey from... So being that this is a farming conference, we make farming spiritual. And God's promise of a land to be inherited was given in specifically agricultural terms. God said, I will give you a land that will abound and agricultural productivity. We'll look at another scripture later that further defines that abundance. But to get into the land that was abounding, they had to get out of Egypt. God called Moses there at the burning bush. He said, go tell my people that I will come and visit them. And you know the story. Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, let my people that they may serve me. And Pharaoh said, no, ten times. Until the last time. And the Israelites left Egypt. Some of the Egyptians left Egypt with them. They crossed through the Red Sea. The Apostle Paul says the Israelites were baptized unto Moses where? In the Red Sea. It's a symbol of the Christian experience. But see... Again, the, the topic, the title tonight is 
Yes, they were out, but did they succeed in getting in? Yeah, see, they were going somewhere, but were they actually getting anywhere? Does your life ever feel like that? Out of Egypt you came, but are you in? Going somewhere you are, but have you come anywhere? Anybody ever feel like that? Felt like that before? Egypt is a symbol of the bondage of the soul to sin. The wilderness experience is also a symbol. Joshua chapter 5 here, I give you a couple reasons why they got stuck in the wilderness. You see, the wilderness is a symbol, and we're going to find out what it's a symbol of in Joshua 5 and a few other passages. Verse 6 says, The children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they, what? Obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord swore unto their fathers that he would give us a land that flows with milk and honey. He would not give it to them because they wouldn't obey. You see, if Egypt is a symbol of bondage to sin, the wilderness experience is a symbol of only partial freedom. True, they weren't any longer captive to the Egyptians. Now they were just captives to themselves. Partially obedient. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 19. The Apostle Paul, speaking about the wilderness experience, says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? Unbelief. In departing from the living God, verse 19 says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. See, they believed enough to get out of Egypt. But they didn't believe enough to get in. They had partial belief to match their partial obedience. Psalms chapter 81, verse 10. Clicker, there we go. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But the scripture says, my people would not, what? And would, what? Would have none of me. They had partial obedience. They had partial faith. They listened partially. And they only had a partial relationship with Jesus Christ. They knew who he was, but they didn't know him. They knew enough about him that they managed to get out of Egypt. But then it stopped. And they didn't know enough of him to get in. Out, but not in. Going, but not coming. It was partial. So the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, cannot be materialized, realized by those who are only partly committed. You know, I think about my life. When I was 18, I was on drugs. 
I recently told someone, it was an algebra teacher at a public school in Fresno, Clovis actually, Clovis, California, suburb of Fresno. She taught math. I told her a fun sto funny story of when I was in algebra two in high school. I had long hair down to my shoulders. I dyed it red. You can't imagine that, I know, right now, probably. But my hair is kind of dark, that much you can notice. And so when I dyed it red, I didn't bleach at first, and so it didn't turn out red, it turned out kind of maroon. And I went to the back of Algebra 2, the classroom, every day, really kind of bored with the class. Put my head on the wall, went to sleep. One day I walked in and I noticed that there was a big red circle on the wall in the back of the classroom. I was telling this teacher, math teacher, this story. I was thinking back about where I was in my life when God got hold of me. And how, when I gave my heart to Christ, I gave it to him because I'd never met anybody like him ever before in my life, period. And I said to myself, as the, as the, as the pastor of the local church, I was not raised Christian, by the way. I had no Christian experience, really. As I was studying the Bible with the, with the pastor of the local church, he looked across the table at me and said, David, God has a plan for you in your life. I said, Pastor, you're crazy. Why would God use somebody like me? I didn't say that out loud. It just went through my head. The next thought that went through my mind was, wow, Lord, why would you use me? I've never met anybody like that in my life. If that's what you're like, I really want to know. But strange thing happened. Five, six, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen years of the motions of church life. Everybody okay? I guess the table's not okay. Years of going to church made me feel that my religious experience was based on what I did, not on who I know. And see, that experience right there is perfectly captured by the Israelite experience. They partly believed. They partly believed in themselves. Because you remember when the spies came and told them about the giants in the land, he had the ten spies, said, no, we can't do it. And the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, yes, we can do it. The Lord will bless us. They said, no, we can't do it. And so they decided not to go in. The Lord said, fine, if you don't want to go in, you don't get to go in. And the next morning they woke up and said, well, well, hey, we really would like to go in. And God, Moses, God speaking through Moses, said, don't go. Because God's not going with you. And they tried with their own human power to take the land that was given by promise. And how did it work out? Through a series of events the last two, three, four years, God's been calling my mind back. Why did you begin to follow me in the first place? And I'm reminded that what got me out of Egypt is the same thing that gets me in. There's a certain church in the book of Revelation. You know which church this is I'm going to? A church that was partial. You see, they weren't cold. They weren't in Egypt. You see, they weren't hot. They weren't in the promised land. They were meh. The church of Laodicea is the church of today. Out of Babylon, but not in. 
You didn't hear me. The church out of Babylon, but hasn't yet come in. That's me. That's you. That's us. Out but not in. Going nowhere. Coming to nothing. Out but not in. Tomorrow evening I'm going to talk to you about manna. Sermon titled, You Can Keep the Manna. I want the milk and honey. So you think about that. Let's keep going. See, they, they needed to get into something. They needed to get into the promised land. I'll tell it to you this way. They had managed to get out of bondage, but they had not managed to get into obedience. They had managed to get in out of Egypt, but they had not managed to get into faith. They had gotten themselves out of Pharaoh's reach, but they had not gotten themselves into Christ. And so Paul says they entered not into the rest. The land of Canaan, gentlemen in the back, the uh, clicker is failing me. There we go, thank you. The land of Canaan is also a symbol. The promised land is a symbol. I failed to put the text up there. This is Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up my hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up my hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and what? Which is the glory of all lands. It's a farming conference. I'm going to say it again. The promise that God gives to us is given in agricultural terminology. He did not say that I will make you to inherit a land on the outer suburbs of the finest city. He said, I will make you to inherit a land that flows with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. I've come to realize, as I think that what I'm doing is rather important, I think that our farm is rather important. I think that this conference, this movement is rather important. But God has had to remind me that it is not the thing in and of itself. Farming is not a magic bullet. Being vegetarian is not a magic bullet. Living out of the country, living a hundred miles from the nearest Coke machine is not a magic bullet. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, maybe you are one of those Christians, one of those Adventists that believe the best thing for you to do is get far away from the cities you can possibly get. You know, you can be entirely lost and be on a farm. You know, I have, I have known and seen people that live, have grown up on farms that are entirely, completely lost. I have seen Adventist kids grow up on farms that are just horrible. I love you. They're not talking about your kids. You know what I'm talking about? 
we cannot make our calling a substitute for him. It's the glory of all lands. Can you forward me a slide, please? Gentlemen in the back there, what's going on? There we go. I want you to notice something in that passage, and I, I sort of highlighted all the times in this passage where God identifies himself. I, mine, myself, I, 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 mine, I. God identifies himself so strongly in the passage. The reason why the land was so glorious is because it was his land. It was the land that he spied out in the passage. It was so glorious because he was there. No, Psalms 27, verse 4, if you can give me the next slide. David speaking about heaven. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Because he wanted to see the streets of gold. Because he wanted to sit and kick back and relax under the tree of life. Because he wanted to visit the other planets and talk with the angels and find out Abraham's story with a little more detail. He said, I, one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to do two things. I want to look at God and I want to ask Him questions. That's it. So David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Maybe you'd be content being a doorkeeper. Come on, be honest. Lowly job, doorkeeper. David says, I'll keep the door of any house that God's in. Let's go back uh, or forward a slide for me, please. Ellen White, again, will call you to this here. The Passover was to be both commemorative and typical. Pointing back to the deliverance from Egypt, but forward to the greater deliverance which Christ was to accomplish in freeing His people from the bondage of sin. You see, if, if Egypt is a symbol of bondage to sin, the land of Canaan is not a promise of heaven. The land that flows with milk and honey. I know we sing the hymns and the songs that make, that make the land of Canaan sound like a promise of heaven. But no, no, no. If the land of Egypt is a symbol for bondage, then the land of milk and honey is a symbol for the relationship that saves in Jesus Christ. That was a wonderful spot to say amen. Either you think that I'm a heretic or you didn't hear me. Maybe I'm speaking with poor language. Every day when you farm your land, Every day when you farm your garden, the thing that makes gardening special is the things that you see about God in that land. If Egypt was a symbol of bondage to sin, then the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of milk and honey was a symbol to them of the rest that they find from bondage in Christ alone. I want to show you this gentleman. Next slide, please. One more. Deuteronomy chapter 11, 10 and 12. Deuteronomy says, but the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys. Wait, 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 wait. I got an extra slide, on, extra verse on the screen, sorry. Talking about Egypt. For the land where you go in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out where you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs. How did you have to keep uh, track, take care of the garden in Egypt? With human effort. 
Follow me now. In Egypt, they had to exert human effort to maintain their garden. But listen to what the next couple of verses say. He says, the land you go in to possess is a land of hills and valleys and drinks the water of the rain of heaven. A land which the Lord your God cares what? For. Because the eyes of the Lord are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. The promised land was a promise of a land maintained not by human effort, but by divine power. You put the three together. If Egypt is a symbol for bondage, if the wilderness is a symbol of partiality, the promised land is a symbol of what happens when people let go of it all. And when they take the same faith that it took to get out of Egypt and realize that's the same faith that it takes to get in, to be saved requires the same faith. To live the righteous life requires the same divine power. Not human power. And so God couched the promise of Christ and the promise of eternity in agricultural language to remind them every time they looked at their crops that what they needed most was Him. Was Him. Let's go to the next slide. So this is a farming workshop. This is a farming conference. And what does all this have to do with farming whatsoever at all? I think maybe I, I, I've hinted at a little bit of it. Uh, next slide, please. Why don't you listen to this quote about Moses? Ellen White writing here. Talking about Moses in the book Gospel Workers. Moses, uh, excuse me, special testimonies on education. Moses supposed that his education in the wisdom of Egypt had fully qualified him to lead Israel from what? How can a man that's been learned in the ways of the world free people that are in bondage to the world? You know, at that point in Moses' experience, you know where he was? Moses was in the wilderness. No, no, no. He was in Egypt, but in his heart, he was in the wilderness. He thought that he could accomplish God's plan with his own wisdom and his own effort. Did you catch that? A lot of us here sitting in the room, I myself have gone through this in my own life, thinking that I can fulfill God's plan for my life by simply trying harder. He supposed that his education and the wisdom of Egypt had fully qualified him to lead Israel from bondage. He made a miserable failure of his first attempt. Moses have the right calling? What do you think? Did Moses have the right calling? Did Moses see the need to free people from bondage? The problem was, he tried to set people free. And how many times you and I, with our effort, our power, our wisdom, our genius, try to set ourselves free and lead other people to freedom that we don't have. But this story gets more about farming here. Like many another, he then immediately lost his confidence in God. That's a strange thing. Moses tries with his own effort, 
then he blames God for the plan failing. You and I have never done that. Lord, it didn't work. You tried it your way. Like many another, he then immediately lost confidence in God and turned his back upon his appointed work. He fled from the wrath of Pharaoh. That, that, that sentence breaks my heart. He knew the calling. He saw the need. But he tried by his own power. Then he discarded his faith in God and he rejected his calling. That's terrible. It's pathetic. God's gracious. Somebody say amen. Next slide, gentlemen. As a shepherd of sheep, here comes the farming. Moses was taught to care for the afflicted, to nurse the sick, to seek patiently after the straying, to bear long with the unruly, to supply with loving solicitude the wants of the young lambs and the necessities of the old and feeble. As these phases of his character were developed, he was drawn nearer to who? Next slide, gentlemen. He became united to, submerged in the Holy One of Israel. He believed in the great God. He held communion with the Father through humble prayer. Where at? On the farm. Caring for his sheep. Walking around in Midian. Caring for dumb, dumb sheep. Anybody ever had sheep? Tell me, what do you think? Bright, smart, intel, TP, uh, GPA 4.0? Uh. It gets better. He looked to the highest for an education in what? Do you know the thing that God wants you and I to learn most from farming is not how to grow beets. You're like, praise the Lord, I don't like beets anyway. The thing God wants us to learn most in our gardens, in our farms, on our ranches is spiritual education. Spiritual education. And for a knowledge of his duties as a faithful shepherd, his life became so closely linked with heaven that God talked with him what? That's what the farm has to do with this. God wants farms, God wants gardens, God wants agronomists and horticulturalists whose chief objective is not to grow produce, whose, whose main goal is not to isolate ourselves from society so that we're shielded and protected from the, the contamination of the world. God wants people who are interested in nature and natural laws so they may behold the God of nature and become like Him. In Egypt, God told Moses His calling. But on the farm, God showed Moses himself. You know, a friend and I have been talking recently. We were talking about a God who never answers back when you pray to him. Anybody ever notice that? You ever notice when you're in your prayer closet in the morning, your devotional time, when you're praying to God, you notice he never answers back? And I don't mean like he doesn't answer your prayer. I said he doesn't answer back. How long would you talk on the phone with a person who never responded to anything you said? How long would I stand here and preach if you never looked at me or never responded? 
not very long. How long would your wife appreciate you, gentlemen, if you never listened to her? Like, I'm not answering that. On the farm, Moses prayed humbly, but God came down and answered him face to face. Do you believe that God loves you less than he loved Moses? Think God wants to use you less than he wanted to use Moses? Think God wants to talk to you less than he wanted to talk to Moses? On the farm, Moses not only learned to care for sheep, he gained an experience with God that made him now qualified to go back to Egypt and set his people free. Next slide, please. What does farming have to do with this presentation? It has to do with the way we train our young people. Ellen White writes, how many useful and honored workers in God's cause have received a training amid the humble duties of the most lowly positions in life. Moses was the prospective ruler of Egypt, but God could not take him from the king's court to do the appointed work, the work appointed him. Only when he had been for 40 years a faithful shepherd was he sent to be the deliverer of his people. Gideon was taken from the threshing floor to be the instrument in the hands of God for delivering the armies of Israel. Elisha was called to leave the plow and do the bidding of God. Amos was a husbandman, a tiller of the soil, when God gave him a message to proclaim. Next slide. All who become co-workers with Christ will have a great deal of hard, uncongenial labor to perform. How many of you think gardening is kind of hard? I hear the expression of personal experience in the room. And I say amen. But you know, God's objective is not to make my farm successful. God's objective is to take me. God's objective is to take you. And through the difficulties of farm life, garden life, ranch life to shape you into a person he can talk to face to face. All who become co-workers with Christ will have a great deal of hard, uncongenial labor to perform. And listen, the lessons of their instruction should be wisely chosen and adapted to the peculiarities of character and the work which they are to pursue. I want to call your mind to the, the, the great men of the Bible. And I want to ask you a question. Why is it that God, before he could use Moses, sent him to a farm? Why is it before God could use Joseph earlier, had to send Joseph through a farm? Why is it that Elisha had to be called from a farm? And why is it that David? And why is it that Amos? And why is it, oh, don't forget Adventist history, that William Miller was called off the farm? Why is it that Elijah was called from the pastoral land of Gilead to confront the apostasy of his day on Mount Carmel? Because the farm life, the educational experience ordained in the Garden of Eden is the best preparation for those workers who God calls to change the world.
So their purpose in life must be matched to their training in life. And so for years, the Adventist church has been delaying, procrastinating, complaining about the difficulties of running farms and gardening in our institutions and in our homes, teaching our children at church, in our own homes, and at our schools, because farming is hard. And we have chosen, yep, to get out of Egypt, but not to come in. You say, what am I talking about? What I'm telling you is that our young people need an educational experience that will not teach them things. That our educational experience for our young people needs to be such that it shows them the face of God right in their two eyeballs. What I'm saying to you is that getting out of Egypt and getting into the land of promise means that you must fully trust God's plan, fully implement God's plan, and fully seek God while implementing His plan. Because if the work of our church is to finish the work of God, then the training of those workers should be calculated, wisely chosen, adapted to the work that they are to finish. You didn't catch that. Give me another slide, gentlemen. A couple more. We'll be done. I'll read it to you from Ellen White. This is a Review and Herald article. I've been shown that in our educational work, we are not to follow in the methods that have been adapt, adopted in our older established schools. There is among us too much clinging to old customs. And because of this, we are far behind where we should be in the development of what? You see, there's a direct relationship between the church's mission, the three angels' messages, and our educational methods. And don't think that I'm talking about Orlando Junior Academy or Fresno Adventist Academy or Great Lakes Adventist Academy or, or, or Holbrook School or Weimar. Don't think I'm talking about institutions. I'm talking about education as a method. And you can use a secular, worldly, Egyptian method of educating in a homeschool. You can do education the way the world does it in any environment. And that's exactly what she's talking about, the education that has been done the way it's always done because that's the way it's been done, always the way it's been done. There's too much among us clinging to old customs. And because we've just followed the world's method of education, we just add a Bible class for every day, an hour. In an hour Bible, it's sanctified education. That's old customs. And because of this, we are far behind where we should be in the development of the third angel's message. Because men could not comprehend the purpose of God and the plans laid before us for the education of our workers, methods have been followed in some of our schools which have retarded rather than advanced the work of God. How many of you, I'm going to ask an honest question. How many of you here work for a school or for a church that has a school or for a conference office that has a school? How many of you are teachers, educators in some sort? I want to make a radical statement. The fulfillment of our church's mission is directly tied to our educational methods. And we will not go anywhere 
while always trying to go somewhere. You can get out, but that doesn't mean you'll get in. You can be going somewhere but coming nowhere because if we don't change our methods, we will be here for a very long time. Next slide, please. The usefulness, what does she say? Shocking here. The usefulness learned on the school farm is the very education that is most essential for those who go out as missionaries to many foreign fields. If this training is given with the glory of God and view great results will be seen, no work will be more effectual than that done by those who, having obtained an education in practical life, go forth to mission fields with the message of truth, preparing to instruct as they've been instructed. Our farm has opened up opportunities for ministry that are shocking. I mean, just stunning. I might have mentioned last year when I was here. I got a 80-person bus tour a couple of years ago. A group of environmentalists uh, in California giving a tour of the Central Valley, talking particularly about agricultural chemicals and proximity to uh, schools and exposure to kids. And they wanted to highlight a school that was chemical-free. So somebody told them about us, and so they brought this bus tour down to our farm. They had people from the EPA, Department of Pesticide Regulation, policymakers at Sacramento, environmentalists, about 80 people on this tour. They came, they looked, they saw. It was an amazing thing all by itself. I thought it was really cool. Um, about eight months later, I got a phone call from a gal named Maria. Maria said, you probably don't remember me, but I was on the tour. And uh, I work for such and such an organization up in Sacramento, and my boss has a kid in school here, in, uh, a private school here in Sacramento, and they're doing a, uh, a, a, an event, a summit, they called it, an environmental summit. And they were looking for someone to talk about education and farming. Would you be interested? Sure, we'd be interested. So we talked and chit-chat a little bit. And I noticed she never told me what farm or what school it was. So that was kind of funny. It's kind of important to know what school you're going to talk at if they want you to talk at the school. So I asked her, so what school is this? She said, um, it's the Jesuit high school in Sacramento. So now you all think that I'm a Jesuit because only a Jesuit could speak at a Jesuit school. <laughs> just having a farm on our campus, just having a farm on our campus has opened opportunities to minister and connect with people we would never connect with before. I spent 15 years working for the church, Bible work, canvassing work, preaching an evangelistic series, all the traditional stuff. I have had opportunities to connect with people I would never be able to reach in previous other forms of ministry. I have a lady on my farm right now. California's three hours behind. I have a lady on my farm right now volunteering from the local community. She's a member of our CSA, and she told one of her friends about us. Her uh, friend came with her mother and her boyfriend this past Sunday and volunteered on the farm, helped us pick and pack oranges. Her mother works for Clovis High School, the one I was referring to a little bit earlier in the story. And we got to chatting. And we started talking about education and what we're trying to do with the farm. And she started nodding her head like, yeah, I work for the school systems. I know what you're talking about. And she talked about how cool it would be to be able to get the kids a hands-on experience and, and how neat it would be to get them on the farm. And she said to me, would you mind if I sent my kids to your farm to volunteer for extra credit? What do you think the answer was? <laughs> the purpose of the farm on the school is to make kids missionaries. 
and to fulfill our work as a church. Let's keep going. If this training is given with the glory of God in view, did I read the whole thing? I don't remember now. No work will be more effectual than that done by those who, having obtained an education in practical life, go forth in mission fields with the message of truth, prepared to instruct as they have been instructed. One more slide. Before, that's a prerequisite word. It's a conditional word. It's a conditional prophecy that Ellen White's about to make here. Before we can carry the message of present truth in all its fullness to other countries, we must first break every yoke. And what's a yoke, my friends? It's a farm tool. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you but they couldn't enter into his rest because of their unbelief. Justin Martyr, the early Christian, says that Jesus was a carpenter. Of course, the Bible says that too. And in his father's shop, made implements of agriculture like plows and yoke by which he taught the symbols of righteousness. We must break every yoke. We must come into the line of true education, walking in the wisdom of God and not in the wisdom of the world. God calls for messengers who will be true reformers. We must educate, educate to prepare people who will understand the message and then give that message to the world. One more slide. I think it says summary next. Is there one more slide or is that it? That's it. I guess I forgot to put it in there. Or maybe it didn't hit save. Let me summarize the summary. Friends, I want to be a reformer. Because I want to enter in. It means nothing to come out if you don't go in. It means nothing to be constantly going somewhere if you never actually get to where you're supposed to go. And I'm not making farming a magic bullet, but I will say that farming is one mechanism which we need to implement to get us along to where we need to go into. If we want to go into the promised land, that last quote says we must incorporate farms into our schools and break the yokes. If we want to enter into that relationship with Christ like Moses had, if we want our future reformers to have the power and, the, and the, the energy of Elijah and Elisha and Moses and David to slay Goliath, then we need to offer them the same type of educational experience that God gave to Moses and God gave to David and God gave to all those other men. If we want to go in, we must lay aside partiality and implement in full faith, in full obedience, in a full relationship with Christ, all those things that he's calling us to. The children of Israel were led out of bondage by a man whose traditional education experience had to be erased by 40 years of agricultural learning, by a man who would have led them into the promised land had they believed. A man, by the way, whose closeness to Christ was cultivated by a result of the influence of shepherding on his soul. They were led into a land whose chief characteristic was its agricultural capabilities. Now what about you?
and what about me? This evening, I offer you, God offers us, not an invitation to farm, an invitation to enter in to him. And I plead with you, do not be unbelievers. Do not be partial. Enter in the land of milk and honey, the glorious land. Enter in and find the rest that Christ offers and see it in everything you do on your farms, in your gardens, wherever you grow, whatever you grow, don't miss the point. And the point is to enter in to him. Our Father in heaven, we have somewhere to go. And we want to come in. But in honesty, I'm like the man in Jesus' day. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. By your grace, Lord, through our faith in you and your love for us, help us realize that if it took you to get us out of Egypt, it'll take you to get us in. And let us not, like the Israelites of old, push you aside and have none of you, but instead to take all in full of your glory, of your grace in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.